You know, as we've been singing these songs, this service, and as we've been listening to the testimonies of, from Chad and Tina and just testimonies from God's truth, I'm, I find myself in a place just of complete overwhelmness. I find myself in a place where even as early as this morning at 6 a.m. as I'm preparing this text, it was as if the Lord wouldn't let me grab a hold of it in such a way to where I would put my confidence in what I've prepared rather than him. So as we're singing these songs and I'm, as I'm, I'm sensing the spirit of God at work in here today, uh, just because the singing has stopped doesn't mean the worship has. That there's this reality this morning that I want you and I to really grapple with. And, and that is that God sees us exactly where, he is, exactly where we are, but yet he's provided everything that we need in order to experience him fully. That where we're going to find ourselves in the text today is, even as Chad and Tina were just sharing where they find themselves, is the reality for us as Christians is that it's difficult at times to follow Jesus, especially when our following of him doesn't make sense. And if you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, you know that there are things that God's going to call you into. There are ways that your life is going to span out or shape out to be that just don't make sense to you. And in our Christianity, we can become so spiritual that we're unwilling to admit the fact that God, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so we're going to start, and I'm going to ask you all to take a seat because we're going to be in a pretty dense amount of text. But what I want to do is... I want to start with the word of God, and I want to allow God to show us and unveil. This, for many, will be a familiar text. We're going to be in Matthew 9, verses 35 through 35, and an entire chapter of 10. But my prayer is that though this text is familiar to many, that God will give us fresh eyes to see it as if we're seeing it for the first time. And so I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to read, and then we're going to dive on in. Let me pray. Father, I recognize my inadequacy. I recognize that I really bring nothing to the table that would be useful in your hands unless your hand is upon me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth would be um, the very words of you. Father, would you fill me for your assignment? Would your spirit take over? Would I be as John? Would I decrease that you may increase? Father, I pray that you would prepare the ears of your people, that we would be hearers of the word, but then prepare our hearts that we would be doers of the word as well. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond appropriately to what you lay out to us about yourself. Father, we need your help. I stand as the first to confess, I need your help. Because even now I find myself wrestling and grappling between all of that life has going on and the truths of who you are. Father, bring those together, merge the two, and let us see you as the good shepherd that you are, that you are still shepherding your flock. Even now, even today, even in this moment, you're shepherding us. Give us faith to believe that. Give us grace to trust that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm starting Matthew 9, verses 35, and it says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. 
And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant. The workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Summoning the 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, so freely you give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his food. And when you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it wouldn't be more tolerable. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them, because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in your synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me, to bear witness to them and to, and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about what you will say, or don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your father is speaking through you. Brothers will betray brother to death. And a father, his child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For I truly, for truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man has come. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, don't be afraid. Therefore, don't be afraid of them since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered. And nothing hidden that won't be unknown. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able or but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. 
Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have been counted, have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me for others, I will also deny him before my father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because of his, because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is a disciple, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. That's a lot of text, right? And on the surface, you're listening to the words of Jesus to his very own people, and you're probably saying, man, that's hard to hear. You're probably thinking to yourself, man, I know that Jesus had called his disciples to follow him, but now he's literally putting them into a position where he's unfolding before them what it actually looks like to follow in his steps. The text today, just as a little context, the text, um, Matthew 9, 35 through 38, it actually comes on the tail end of Matthew 4 when Jesus sees two pairs of brothers and he says, follow me, for I will make you fishers of men. The text says, or the Bible says, immediately they left everything and left everyone and they followed him. But along the journey... Along the way, as they observed Jesus going about his earthly ministry, preaching the good news of the kingdom, teaching in the synagogues, and healing every sickness and disease that came his way, there now comes this point where Jesus turns, and you have to imagine the disciples walking with Jesus, that they're walking with him, and as they come to this place where Jesus has continued in his ministry, he's continuing to see hordes and hordes of people come to him. He stops for a moment. And the sex says that he saw something. You see, in order to encapsulate what's going on with text, I understand completely that for most of you, you've always heard this text um, preached in terms of a missional thrusting. It's always been kind of packaged as Jesus is sending you out, so go and leave all behind. The more and more I've studied this text, the more and more what I've seen is that um, um, what you're going to find is Jesus is not necessarily trying to establish himself solely as this authoritative leader. Jesus is actually trying to establish for us to see him as a good shepherd. 
Jesus has been healing folk over and over and over again. And yet in this moment, Jesus, as he's continuing to go around all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news, it says that he saw the crowds and he felt compassion. He saw the crowds. One could think that Jesus was too busy He was too active to actually stop for a moment and see the people that he was serving. On the onset, you could think that Jesus had a mission, yes, and that what he entire or what he desired for his people was to be about that mission, yes, but yet Jesus pauses for a moment and he lets his disciples into who he is. You see, the thing about Christianity is it's not so much about Jesus telling you what to do. It's more so about Jesus bringing you close so that you can learn about who he is. Let's look a few, let's look, let's look at this Jesus who right here is trying to unveil before his people. Hey, you don't have to be suspicious about me. Where does suspicion come from? Well, prior to in, in chapter nine, verse three and 32, you see two types of people suspicious of Jesus' authority. The scribes. After Jesus heals a paralytic man and he tells that paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, they say, he's blasphemous. Jesus, you're not who you say you are. You can't declare yourself as being like God who can, who can forgive sins. No, you're blasphemous. You're irreverent. But the Pharisees come behind after another healing, and they're suspicious of him too. And the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being a devil worshiper. Oh, Jesus is able to heal by the authority of the devil himself. As a side note, I want to caution you, anyone who you know who would claim that Jesus is like a devil or is friends with a devil, I want to say, you probably don't need to hang out with them. The suspicion of both the Pharisees and the scribes is similar to you and our suspicion about Jesus. When we can't fully know his plans, when we can't fully see his hand, when we can't fully understand why he will allow certain things to go the way that they have, when we can't fully see how the, the pathway that he's leading us down really makes sense in the global scheme of my good, we're suspicious. You want to know if you're suspicious of Jesus? When it comes to a major decision, how quickly are you to go to prayer? When it comes to deciding the direction of your life, where do you run to for counsel? Is it God's word? Is it other brothers and sisters who can speak that you trust to speak into your life? Or have you found yourself in a place where you really feel like, Jesus, I've been following you for some time, but honestly, it just doesn't make any sense anymore, so I'm going to trust in myself. Jesus, in the midst of that suspicion, Now Matthew is going to point and draw our attention to showing us that Jesus doesn't want to leave us up to our own suspicions. Jesus doesn't want us to have to try to figure him out on our own. But Jesus is going to unveil himself and reveal himself in such a way to where you and I know exactly what it looks like to know him and to follow him. And that every intention that he has for us is for our good. Here's a picture of this Jesus for you. Text says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. 
Here we see that Jesus is not someone that remains distant or far away, but Jesus is willing to enter into our environment. It says that not only is he willing to enter into our space or our environment, but that he brings with him good news of the kingdom. He brings with him a hope, but not only does he bring um, a hope with him, but he brings a holistic healing. It says he healed every disease and every sickness. And then it says that Jesus saw the crowds. The misconception is that you think that your brokenness has escaped the eyes of Christ. You think that what you're going through or your environment or your circumstances, somehow Jesus has passed over that and that has shown you or that has um, rooted in your own heart a belief that God doesn't care. Jesus looks upon the people, the crowds of people, the towns and the villages, and he doesn't just see beautiful architecture. He doesn't just bask at the beauty of the terrain. No, what he sees is people. Jesus doesn't look at you as his project to be solved. Jesus looks at you as a person in order to be known. The text goes on and it says that he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion. When you think of Jesus, do you think of someone who actually feels your brokenness? When you think of Jesus, do you think of one who would look at the trap house, would look at systemic oppression, would look at all of the problems in our society or in our life? And do you think that he has compassion for you? Or do you view Jesus as somebody who simply wants me to obey a list of rules, but doesn't actually care about me as an individual? Jesus looks at the crowd and he says he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he's going to be honest with us. He's not going to keep us in the dark or allow us to believe something about ourselves that is not true. He says that they were sheep without a shepherd. And so in the midst of him telling his disciples, look, look out upon, uh, look out at the masses and and here's what I see. Sheep, broken, harassed, helpless. But then he shifts their attention and he goes into the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. One of the things about Christianity that we must understand is that God has not saved you just for yourself. That there's this reality that Jesus invites us into close fellowship with him. But there's also a reality that he enables us to see things the way that he sees them. That he gives us new sight. He gives us a new heart to feel. He allows us to see him for who he is. But there's a purpose to it. How many of our churches are filled with those who would say that, yes, I know Jesus for myself. Yes, I'm enjoying the Bible studies you're provided. Yes, I'm enjoying the conferences that I can go to. Yes, I'm enjoying all the resources that I've acquired that's helping me to learn to know Jesus. And yet, functionally, we begin to think that that's meant only for my own benefit. That what God is entrusting to you and I, that that is something solely meant for my prosperity and my blessing and my, 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 my. The reason why Jesus has to, in any way, the reason why Jesus to the disciples has to show them the condition of humanity is because we're prone to think that everybody's okay. We're prone to think about our friends and our brothers and our family members that don't know Jesus 
have no relationship with him at all and think that as long as they know that I'm a Christian, as long as I pray before our meals, as long as they hear the music I listen to, that that will be enough to convert them. Jesus has to tell his disciples, look, look out amongst you. What I see is not people whose bank accounts are impressive. What I see is not people who have everything together. What I see is not people who have their life planned in such a way to where the end of the day, it's going to prosper. No, what I see is helpless and harassed. What I see is lost people. But he doesn't stop there. He moves into, after seeing what was naturally, I think, common for the disciples to see, if, if hospitals had been emptied out and people were getting healed, if hospice centers had been emptied out and coming to Jesus and you're witnessing this and you're seeing him raise people back to life, wouldn't you have an estimation that the world is broken? You wouldn't need much convincing that there's sick people everywhere. But here's what Jesus does have to convince us of. The harvest is abundant. That Jesus has to tell us that despite what you're seeing with your own physical eyes, I want to give you eyes of faith. I want to show you something beyond the natural and help you to see the, the, the work that I've prepared for you as my people. That there's a harvest out there ready for picking. But he contrasts that with, but there are so few laborers to pick up the harvest. There are so few that are willing to actually step out in faith and go and call the very people that I've created for my own possession into the fold. I don't even think that this is an indictment against his disciples or us as his church. I think more this is a declaration of sorts of there being a shepherd who is going to go after their sheep. The reason I say that, Ezekiel 34, I'm going to turn there real quick. Ezekiel 34 It says this, verses 11 and on. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places. I will tend them in the good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in good grazing place. They will feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel, and I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong, and I will shepherd them with justice. Here's the promise, 23. And I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them and he will tend them himself and will be their shepherd and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The picture is that Israel's was hoping for somebody who would stop, who would put an end to the rule of the corrupt religious 
leaders. That there was a day that was dawning where there would be somebody who would come in and he would actually go after the lost sheep. But here's the thing, y'all. Jesus doesn't just stop with him demonstrating his deeds and his strong preaching and teaching to call lost sheep to himself. Jesus shifts from, I'm going to model for you as my disciples what it looks like to be about my ministry, to now I'm going to hand off to you the very ministry that you've seen me do. In chapter 10, it says, after he tells them to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest, it says this, he summoned his 12 disciples. A few years ago, uh, a mentor of mine had um, shared a story with me about how he proposed to his wife. And in this story, he begins to tell that, you know, they had been dating for some time and he had sensed that the Lord was calling them to take the next step. And it was at that moment of taking the next step that um, he also was convinced that God had called them, him into a missional lifestyle. So upon asking his uh, girlfriend at the time to marry him, you would think that he would start off about all the ways that he loved her and all these different things. But no, he actually starts off with, baby, I'm going to ask you a question. But before I ask you the question, before I invite you to commit to me, I want to lay out to you what our lives could possibly look like. See, I, I can never promise you that we'll actually ever own a house. You see, I can't promise you that we'll have that 401k package at the end of the day. I can't promise you that our kids will be in the nicest of schools or that we'll live in the safest of neighborhoods. But what I can promise you is that my sole commitment is that wherever Jesus leads me, there I want to be. Now there may be sisters in the room that are like, uh-uh. Don't come at me with no, oh, I love Jesus and we're going to be poor and all this other stuff. Nah, I ain't buying that. But here's the thing. She said yes. And the reason why she said yes was not because how suave or how swaggy his proposal was. The reason why she said yes is because she understood what it meant to follow Christ. She understood that the reason why I love you and I'm willing to follow you is because you're not promising me things that God has never actually shown you um, or you're not promising me things or painting a, an illusion of a lifestyle that God himself has not promised us. And, and for many of us, even now, even myself, when I'm, when I'm reading this text and when I'm seeing the Jesus of the Bible, I'm, I have to come face to face with the reality that, that, that perhaps the Jesus that we thought we were oh, that, that perhaps the Jesus that we thought we were following is actually not the Jesus of the Bible. Perhaps all of us, in one way, shape, or form, all of us have put these borders and parameters around Jesus and who we want him to be rather than who he truly is. And so when a woman hears a man say, baby, wherever Jesus would have me is, that's where I want to be. It falls in line exactly with how the life of the believer is always supposed to live. It falls... In line with what Christ tells us as those who follow him, that he doesn't promise us things that we want. But he promises realities that will be true because he knows those are the things that are good for you. If you think about your Christian life in terms of what you can gain in this world, 
you will always be disappointed. How many of us bought into the lie that going to, let me be careful. How many of us believed or heard that we needed an undergraduate undergraduate degree in order to make a bunch of money? That was you. We were programmed to think that four years in college would guarantee me a good paying job. But there were so many realities, especially in 2008, where um, me, myself, and my family, we, we were jobless. And so I had to go down to the unemployment office. And it was at the unemployment office where I'm trying to apply for food stamps just to provide my basic needs that I'm talking with people. And it's those people that I'm finding out, man, there's lawyers in this line. There's doctors in this line. There's people with advanced degrees all over the place in the same place as the people who don't even have a high school education. We've been programmed to think that somehow God owes us luxuries in this life when God has never promised us those things. What Jesus has to do first is he has to broaden and break out of the boxes that you and I have put him in. You know that your college degree didn't guarantee you the life that you thought you would live. So what makes you makes you think that your profession and faith of following Jesus is going to create for you the life that you think you should live? The reality of the Christian life is that our lives and our commitment to follow Christ means that we are surrendering everything to him. The reality of what it means to follow Christ is a commitment and a realization that, God, there are going to be unpredictable outcomes in my life. That I'm not always going to understand why things ended up the way that they ended. And that's a hard place to be in. Why? Because we don't like to have to have faith. We like it to make sense. And we put our rational boxes around an irrational God. God is not confined to your expectations or your plans or your ambitions. He's not confined to that. He's not confined to your personality. He's not confined to your uh, um, Enneagram test. He's not confined to your disc assessment. He's not confined to that. We started off slow, but I'm starting to feel my help come in. Jesus here is trying to broaden the scope of how we see him. Because though we may call him Lord, that doesn't mean that we're allowing him to be Lord. If we say that we follow him, that's attached with the wherever, whenever, however, anything. But the hard thing is that along the way, along the journey of following Jesus, we get weary. And there was a moment in time when we first came to know Jesus that we were excited. There's a moment when we first came to Jesus where our zeal for him was fiery. There's this moment when we first came to know Jesus where we were willing to do anything. There was unconditional willingness to go wherever. And then over time... Life hits. Over time, joy that was once ever present now is a fight to maintain. Zeal that was fiery now has been cooled to just embers. 
an unconditional willingness to go is now met with conditions. God, I will follow you, but. God, I will follow you when. God, I will follow you as long as. Dot, 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 dot. And so what Jesus wants to hold before us is not only a picture of who I am, because the reality is our suspicion has led to us to slowly drift away from him. If you think about authority only in terms of a positive list of do's and don'ts, then you will only see God as a military figure. But if you think of authority as the gateway to freedom and the true experience of reality, now that opens up why God does what he does. Let me convince you of this. Creation has an authoritative odor. God has interwoven in creation this authoritative odor, or order. And so when you think of this, think of a brick wall. If you were to go out of Cornerstone Church and you would look at that brick wall, everybody would affirm that exists. And not even that brick wall. Let's say we put a brick wall in here. If you would look at that brick wall, you know that that, bro- that brick wall exists. And you know that there's freedom on this side and there's freedom on that side and we can move and shake however we want to move. However, if you decide upon yourself to say, you know what, I see the brick wall, but I'm going to try to run through the brick wall, then guess what? That brick wall is going to let you know his authority, right? You're still not convinced. All right. Think of gravity. Gravity has an authority that enables us to be able to walk and do things as long as we honor its authority. However, if you would decide to go to the Grand Canyon and jump off the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon or the authority of gravity is now going to, show, is now going to reveal to you that that decision of freedom to jump off that cliff will be your last decision of freedom. This is the same thing about God. The reality of what the Bible is intended to do or what Jesus, why Jesus reveals himself to us, it's not to rob us of any fleeting pleasures. It's not to rob us of joy. It's not to cause us to be uh, broken or bared down or weighted down or weary. The purpose of Jesus revealing himself and giving his word to you and I is so that we would just know that authority is not a bad thing. Authority is a good thing. Many of us in here, we may have had some trouble with police officers. And if you're a police officer in here, I love you. No shade, no nothing. However, have you ever been in your car just cruising down the street? You're jamming to your favorite song and you're just, 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 just enjoying getting, trying to get to your destination. And then in a moment, you randomly look up in your rear mirror and you see a police officer behind you. And it's in that moment where you know, man, I'm not driving dirty. I know that my registration is up to date. I know that I've been driving within the speed limit. But yet their presence causes you to panic. So what do you do? You sit up straight. You put both hands on the steering wheel. You turn the music down and cut it off completely. And you're just praying that you don't get pulled over. Suspicious. You're suspicious because you think that that officer is going to use his authority against you unjustly. 
But what happens when somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night? What happens when someone puts your life at stake and makes some threats against you? What you going to do? You're going to call that same police officer to come help, right? Why? Because you know that their authority was not meant to be used to oppress me or to come against me, but their authority was meant to protect me. Their authority was meant to make sure that unsolicited harm and difficulty didn't come my way, and so I'm able to trust them in that moment. Well, this is the same thing about God. He summons his 12 disciples and he exchanges with them his very identity. He shares his person with him. And so when you think about the difficult times that you may find yourself there, you may not have all the answers. But the thing that Jesus says is you may not have all the answers, but what I'm going to give to you is my very presence. You may not know how to figure all the matters of life out, but but I want you to submit and surrender to my authority and trust me along the way. One could think that the Christian, the entry point into the Christian faith is the intertwining of fingers. Follow me. We grab grab on his hand and we go along a journey. However, the continuation of the Christian faith is God continuing to hold our hands. That doesn't mean that he's going to lead us to our desired places. That doesn't mean that he's going to send us to everywhere we want to go. That doesn't mean that he's going to give us everything that We want him to give us. But what that does mean is that Jesus will not let our hand go. What that does mean is that even in the most difficult of circumstances, that there's going to come a point where Jesus may send us out. But that doesn't mean that we have lost his presence. Jesus summons his disciples and he gives a a laundry list of all of their names. And then he goes into, he sent these 12 out. And so I just want to, I just want to spend some time real quick. And I just want to show you that, that Jesus doesn't have a problem with letting us know exactly what our lives will look like. And I just want to make that crystal clear that Jesus will always let the people who are following him know what it's going to cost them to follow him. And, and, and the thing that we have to connect the dots with is that don't mistake your mission or what God has called you to do and the difficulty of it. Don't mistake that for God's permissible will and think that that actually may and forget or not know that that actually actually will be his perfect will for your life. That God is not what God is not after is your comfort or convenience. That's not on his priority list. God is not concerned about your plans and all of these, all these things that we want to bring to the table. That's not his primary concern. That's not to say that he doesn't care. But what God wants for you and I is he wants us to know him intimately. What if the pathway to truly knowing Jesus is, to be, is being sent out in the most discomfortable or uncomfortable circumstances only to find assurances of his presence? What if that's God's plan for your life? A life of discomfort, a life of hardship, a life of loss. But it's in that, it's in those things that you learn that though my life is not comfortable, 
God is actually granting me his peace. Though I find discomfort, I'm learning about what God's rest looks like. Though I am suffering loss, I'm learning about what it looks like to be completely satisfied in Jesus. Look at what he tells his disciples in verses 5 and moving down. There's this back and forth of, this is, I, I wanted you to know who I am first, but now I want you to know who I'm making you to be. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions, and it says, he tells them, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. I want to back up a little bit because what we need to see is when Jesus says that he's sending out the 12, that Jesus is automatically telling us, yes, yes, I will send you out discomfort. But I will guide you along the way. Here's my instructions. In verses 5b and 6, he says, yes, I will disrupt your plans, but I will also make my plans known to you. Go here or don't go here, but go here. In verses 7 and 8, it reads, As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received and freely you give. As you go, I will provide, as you go, discomfort. I will provide everything you need, assurance. On and on. The rest of the text, line by line, really is built off of If you're going to be my disciples, you're going to have to trust that I'm going to send you into some dangerous places. If you're going to be my disciples, then you are going to have to relinquish control of your life. I'm going to put you in circumstances and before people you never expected. I'm actually going to take away your iPhone and your Bible and your iPad. And when these people ask you about me, you're not going to have any crutches to depend on. You're actually going to have to depend on me for the very words, and it's in you depending on me for those very words that you're going to learn that I'm with you. Think about that for a second. Think about going to Iran, living in Iran, witnessing to men. Those very same men you witnessed to call the authorities, and now they're bringing you to the courts. And you know what Iran and how they have gotten down. And in you sitting at the courts, they ask you about Jesus, fearful, frightened, hungry, starved, beaten, bruised, whatever it may be. And it's in that moment that you experience the nearness of Jesus. It's in that moment that as you're giving a response to them about why you believe what you believe, that you start to see these words flowing. You start to recall the goodness of Jesus, not only in your life, but you start recalling and thinking about and proclamating the gospel. Jesus says that it's in moments like those that you and I will experience the reality that just because I place you in difficult circumstances doesn't mean that I've abandoned you. If you learn about missional stories, you you hear times where um, I heard this one story about this group of folks that were um, yeah, in Asia and they were um, placed in jail. Um, and one of, the, one of the people were a pastor and they had torn out one piece of scripture. And so day after day, the ISIS or, or the, um, the people who had had them in 
um, in the prison, they keep coming to him. They, they're like, they, they keep threatening them. Will you deny Jesus? Will you deny Jesus? Will you deny Jesus? And this goes on for a span of time. And what ends up happening is that over time, they're sharing this one piece of scripture. They're reading it. They're meditating on it. And they're praying about it. And eventually, they end up being released. And it's in that moment that when they get back to the States, they start to recall of the closeness and the nearness of Christ. They start to recall that even though they were in the prison cell, there was this nearness of Christ, a reality that they had never experienced before. And so one of the guys had asked him a little little bit back, and he says, man, what do you recall most about that experience? And he says, honestly, I'm I'm grateful that I've been released. But honestly, I miss it. I miss being there. I miss being to at the place where all that I had was Jesus and I knew beyond a doubt that he had me. Is that our reality today? Is that where we would find ourselves in our relationships with Christ? That you can read through the rest of this text and you can see that um, that the pathway to truly knowing Jesus is actually to follow in his very footsteps, that Jesus is going to outline, outline for us the fact that there is really no earthly hope or earthly thing that we can actually trust in. It may look different for all of our lives, but we all will find ourselves in a place where the things that we depended on, depended upon, that job, that paycheck, that there's really no security that we'll always have that, that you and I will have to learn what God is wanting to teach us as his people, that I will bring you to the point of need only so that you can look up and realize that I'm actually all you ever had, that I want you to know as my people through hardship, through difficulty, through being sent out on mission, that I am the Lord, your God, and that you are my people. Let us pray. Father, I just ask, Lord, that um, as we think about you and As we hear about even what seems to be difficult words, Father, to hear of the realities of what life that a life of following you, Jesus, that we would actually trust that your way is better than ours. Father, I pray that you would stir up in us a greater desire and commitment to follow you, but also to trust you even when we find ourselves weary. Even when things don't make sense, God, I pray that we would um, lean not on our own understanding, but that we would lean upon the truth of your word. Would we know that, Father, though we can't make sense of life, Father, you've revealed yourself to us, and therefore we can place our trust in the solid rock of your character. We ask all this in Jesus' name.